0: once again for this evening god i thank you for this time we can come to gather together in your name lord to proclaim your glory to worship you for what you've done for us god i thank you for this opportunity we have uh, to lift up our requests to you lord that you have uh, made a way for us to have direct access to your throne room lord i pray that you would uh, be over all these requests lifted up tonight, god that you would be answering them in your perfect way in your perfect timing Father, I pray for our time in your word, uh, that you would be guiding us through this, Lord. I pray that you would be um, speaking to the hearts and minds of each of us here today, Lord, that you would be preparing us for the message you would have, God. I pray that you would uh, guide my words here this evening, Lord, that it would be glorifying to you, that it would be edifying to the church body, Lord, that you would be made much of, God, and that your word would be the center of this service, God. I pray uh, that you would, would be with us in all these things. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. Happy Wednesday. Great to see you all up here again as we continue our study verse by verse through the Old Testament. Uh, So we're finding ourselves once again in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 19 this evening. And so we're covering a section of Deuteronomy right now that uh, gets into a lot of the the minute details of the laws and the different things that come up. Um, Some repetition we see from different things, from numbers and from Leviticus in this area. But it is interesting just to see the priority that God gives to this section of Deuteronomy. A quick reminder, so Deuteronomy is Moses' last address to the people of Israel before he dies and passes on leadership to Joshua. Uh, It's written in the format, really, of a treaty between God and the people of Israel, uh, telling them how they are to live once they go into the promised land, Uh, promising them blessings for obedience and problems if they disobey God. Uh, Deuteronomy calls the people of Israel to remember what God had done for them in the past, to remember his faithfulness to them as he brought them out of Egypt, their journeys through the wilderness, Remember the way he had blessed them and defended them and fought on their behalf. And also Deuteronomy calls the people of Israel to remember what happens when they stray from God and from his plan. That they had seen God's punishment, his wrath, justly poured out upon their enemies and also upon fellow Israelites who had opposed God and what he was doing. So the section we're getting into tonight... um, talks a lot about laws governing the relationships between people and we see the laws in the old testament as well as most of our laws today interact with how we deal with people uh, that, that's such a big part of having an ordered society is how people relate to one another how people are to treat one another how they're to deal with disputes and different problems that arise and so we're reminded as we go into this that a society that honors God is going to prioritize people, is going to seek to value people, to raise people up, to help them, and to defend those in need of defense. As we read through the scriptures, throughout the whole, we're reminded of the importance of humanity, the unique role and purpose God has given us as human beings if we go back to the very beginning of scriptures in genesis chapter 1 in verse 25 says that god made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and god saw that it was good Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so from the very beginning of creation, we see that people have a special role That God made humanity in his image. There's a special purpose they have to fill in that. They're unique and set apart from other animals, from different things upon the earth. Uh, They have that special relationship with God as his image bearers. And that extends to all people. Uh, If we skip just a little ways forward from there in Genesis chapter 9, as Noah exits the ark, God is reestablishing humanity upon the earth after wiping it out because of their wickedness. And one of the first commands God gives is they're basically restarting human society in this point. In uh, Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, he says, "Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. for God made man in his own image." And so very early on in the scriptures we see the importance God gives two people as his image bearers. And we see strong consequences for people who disregard that importance and are willing to take the life of another person. And so as we get into this, uh, we're gonna see a little bit of how Israel was to deal with capital punishment, what they were to do in the case of manslaughter and murder, and how much importance God puts upon the lives of people in this. And our focus point this evening, as we get into this, is that God's people must value life, seek justice, and we must be grateful for God's just provision on our behalf. So we'll get into that a little bit more, that second part a little later. Um, But God's people have to value life and seek justice for their fellow people. That's part of having a society that honors God and seeks to relate to him rightly. So all that being said, let's go ahead and get back to Deuteronomy, our main text this evening. So Deuteronomy chapter 19, starting in verse 1. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves and the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. And so when they go in to the land of Israel, one of the first things they're commanded to do is to set apart these three specific cities. They're supposed to look at the geography, the different area God has given them, and try to have these evenly spread out throughout the land, these three cities of refuge, they were to be called. And so basically, the way these were to work is that if someone kills a person, they're to flee to whichever one of these cities is nearest, And basically, they await the leaders of that city to pass judgment on them. And this is to be a safe zone where they can wait out this judgment without the fear of retribution. So God set these cities in place. He provided this system for the people of Israel in order to protect the innocent. That God wanted to defend those who could be wrongly accused or wrongly executed. That was not something the people of Israel were to allow to happen. And so they have these cities of refuge. God is commanding the people of Israel here to set up a plan to carry out justice and to defend these people who would be falsely accused. That they're to have an ordered system of justice to help maintain order to maintain this respect for and protection and defense of human life. So he continues on in verse 4. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore I command you, you shall set apart three cities, and if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your father's, and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways. Then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So he gives them the command to set up these cities for the manslayer to flee to. Uh, And so here in the scriptures, they're basically making this distinction as we do today between murder and manslaughter. That they're allowing for accidental death at the hands of another person and saying that if that happens, that this person is to flee to the nearest of these cities and he's to wait there for what's going to happen. Uh, So we think about just that distinction between the accidental harm done to another person and someone planning, thinking out, maliciously acting in harm of another person. Um, Fortunately, I don't have any great personal stories at this level at least, uh, but I do think about an experience I had as a kid. Um, So I, uh, growing up, I was pretty young, probably five or six years old. And I remember uh, one day um, I was out playing with the neighbor kids outside in our cul-de-sac. And uh, my parents, as many parents, go through different stages of parenting as they kind of learn and grow and figure out what works and what doesn't work. And uh, for me, as the oldest kid, I always joked I was the experimental kid, you know, that they, uh, they were kind of figuring stuff out with me and seeing what happened. And, um, there was a lot of stuff that they started off pretty strict on and then realized, maybe we can ease up on these a little bit. And for a while there, at this stage of my life, I was not allowed to have any toy weapons. Nothing. Um, so my parents are like, why would we want him to be in the habit of pointing guns at people? Seems like a bad idea. We're just not going to let him even, you know, think that, not play that. Being a boy, of course, I made guns with my Legos. I went out to the garage and found scraps of wood I could make into guns and things like that. And, you know, I found loopholes around this. But at this stage of my life, um, we didn't have a whole lot. And so the neighbor kids were outside and they you know, decided they were going to play war. And so we're running around and, you know, one of them had a plastic hand grenade he's throwing and another one had, you know, one of those little plastic machine guns where you pull the trigger and something inside goes. (laughs) Doesn't really sound like a gun, but it's cool when you're six. So I didn't have any of this. And so I'm, you know, run back in my house. I'm like, all right, what have I got that I can use to go play war with these other kids? And so I'm scrounging through the house trying to figure out what I can use. And somewhere along the way, I I must have gotten into the bathroom and I find this pair of toenail clippers, you know, the long ones like that. And it's got the little thing that folds out with the file for getting the gunk out from under your toenails and stuff. And um, So I'm like, oh, this will work. I'll pretend it's a knife. That'll be fun. And so I'm outside playing around, you know, we're, we're playing war, and I accidentally, as we're running around, jab one of the neighbor kids with this thing. And I i am so embarrassed. I'm just horrified. You know, it was completely accidental. And so I go run back to the house and I hide under the canoe next to the garage for a while. And my parents come find me after, you know, neighbor kid and mom come across the street and are trying to figure out what's going on when I'm stabbing somebody. And uh, I remember, you know, at that time, I was just so flustered and so embarrassed that I couldn't even explain what happened. That I'm sitting there with my mom and she's like, well, why'd you do that? I I don't know, it just happened. Well, were you mad? Was there something mean they were doing to you? And I I don't know. I'm just crying at that point. um, But had I had the fortitude to be able to gather my feelings enough as a six-year-old and explain to my mom that it was an accident, I was not trying to cause harm to this other kid, I imagine the discipline probably would have been lesser than when they thought I did it on purpose. There's a difference between willfully seeking to harm another person and having it happen on accident, even in the ultimate case of a death. And that's what these laws are dealing with, that difference between accidental death, manslaughter, and premeditated, planned out murder of a person. And so they're talking about what that looks like. For this accidental death, you know, the example they give here is if a man is, you know, out with his neighbor, cutting wood, the head comes off the axe and flies and conks him in the head and kills him. This guy has a chance to flee to the city of refuge and await for judgment from the elders of the city there. And so they're to go about and do that and follow God's commands through this. Uh, talks a little bit too just about the importance of that motivation in people's actions. Uh, We see throughout the scriptures that God desires that heartfelt relationship with people, that he wants their hearts. And the actions of people's hearts is going to reflect their relationship with God. That when someone is in that right-standing relationship with God, that murder shouldn't be as much of an issue. Yeah, there might be this accidental manslaughter that could happen. But again, it's just illustrating the importance of the position of one's heart. Is your heart in submission and obedience to God? Or is your heart seeking to harm others? Uh, They talk a little bit too in this section, uh, the later part there, that if God expands the territory he's giving them, that the people of Israel are to set up more of these cities so that everybody will have one nearby, that everyone will have that same opportunity to go to the city of refuge and await a fair trial there and not be worried about having someone come and avenge this accidental death upon them. And so it talks about, he continues on just explaining more of what this looks like in verse 11. It says, but if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, so that it may be well with you. And so he's explaining the other side of the situation here. The accidental killing, the manslaughter. He's to flee to the city of refuge and await a trial there. And in verse 11 he talks about if someone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him. So this is a very different situation here that they're laying out, that there's the accidental death when they're out working together versus someone hating his neighbor, having that antagonistic relationship to start with, and then taking that to the next level and planning against him, planning to do harm to him, lying in wait and attacking him by surprise in order to kill him. And so it says that when that happens, he's to flee to one of those cities And the elders of his city are going to send to the city of refuge and say, no, no, this guy, he's he's hiding out here. He's committed murder. We want you to send him back so that we can execute justice in this case. So the elders are to send and hand him over, it says in verse 12, to the avenger of blood. And so when we read this without some context, that concept of the avenger of blood sounds Kind of brutal, that, you know. Somebody kills someone, and so somebody else just comes and kills them. But we have to understand this contextually—that this was to be a part of their justice system. Uh, they didn't have the same kind of infrastructure and local governments and police and courts and all this other stuff that we have today. That they had the elders of the individual cities, um, and they had, you know, the the leaders the judges later on and eventually a king, Uh, but they didn't have a lot of this local government in place to deal with these things. And so they left that to the leaders of the community and the people who were involved in the issue. And so some of this is a a repetition of Numbers chapter 35. Uh, So we went through that a while back when we were in Numbers, but Numbers 35 kind of gives a fuller explanation of the cities of refuge and the Avenger of Blood. Um, So basically this Avenger of Blood was to be, um, generally a a relative of the person who had been killed. And so it was their job to avenge the death of this this person who had been killed wrongly. Um, So they're seeking to delay this person for the manslaughter, the Avenger of Blood, they don't want him to catch up with this guy and just be mad at him before he's had a trial and kill him. But in the case of a wrongful murder, then the elders are to have the trial to judge the man and then hand him back over to the Avenger of Blood, who was to be the first to take part in that execution. Uh, Most of the time in the Nation of Israel, that would have been a stoning. So he would have been the first person to pick up a rock and throw it at the guy after he had had his chance to make his case to the elders and to be judged fairly. And we see in these verses that crime, that wrongdoing, sin, has to be punished. Uh, Deuteronomy 19.13, we just went over, it says, Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, so that it may be well with you. So this was part of what the people of Israel were to do in order to keep their society holy to uphold the sanctity of human life that if someone takes the life of another person that person had to be punished that in this case capital punishment really was magnifying the holiness of God and the role he had given people set apart from the rest of creation that taking a life could only be repaid by another life And so back in Numbers 35, in verse 33, it says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. And so in this Different passage explaining the cities of refuge and the avenger of blood. God is reminding the people of Israel that not only is this a grievous sin against the person who was killed, against his family, this is a sin against God. That murder defiles the land. That this holy special land that was to be set apart for the people of Israel and their worship with God was defiled by murder. And so not only did they have to repay and punish this person for their actions, but they had to basically atone for this wrongful killing, that this was a crime against God. And we think about what murder really is. Um, Essentially, in order to take the life of another person, on purpose, maliciously, as we've been reading about. To do that, someone has to be valuing this person they're wanting to kill less than whatever it is they're desiring. That murder is taking a person who should be up on this level as an image bearer of God, as someone created by God for a purpose. And they're taking that level that person should be at and dropping it below whatever it is that's angered them, whatever it is that they're desiring to accomplish, whatever it is that they want to have or to be or to do is more important than the life of this fellow person. And we think about the heart that drives that. Uh, If we look at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so Jesus is laying out the standard that people have to live up to, what people are called to. Uh, That we see the strong punishment that Old Testament Israel was to give murderers. But Jesus tells us that the heart that drives murder is just as guilty. That being angry with your brother, with the people around you, brings just as much guilt as taking their life. That the standard God has set is absolute perfection. And to deviate from that brings guilt and punishment. Uh, In 1 John chapter 3, it says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so I'm guessing most of you are like me. You probably haven't taken another life maliciously. But how often Are we angry with those around us how often have we hated someone or been so frustrated or angry with them that we have that animosity growing within our hearts how often in our hearts and in our minds do we take the person who should be on the same level as us as an image bearer of God and devalue them below whatever it is we want in that moment, whatever comfort we're seeking, whatever it is we're looking to accomplish. How easy is it for us to take this most unique, most special crowning aspect of God's creation and to put it down because it's an obstacle to something else we desire to have? How is it that we view the people around us? How do we relate to the people we come across. Are we doing it in love? Or are we letting our selfish desires to murder them within our hearts? Back to Deuteronomy 19. Verse 14 says, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And so they are switching gears a little bit here. We've talked a lot about manslaughter, murder, punishment for that. We're going to circle back to that in a little bit. Uh, but Moses here in the giving of the laws, connecting this with respect for other people and with, their, with respect for their properties. Uh, that they're being commanded here in verse 14 to not move the landmark which the men of old have set. Uh, so at that day and age, they didn't have you know, surveyors and special pens marking different plots of land and different things, they couldn't call in the expert to come double check something if there was a dispute, that they would set markers out whenever they first divided the land. And that was what they had to go off of. And so it would have been probably not very difficult, probably kind of tempting for some of these people to go in and move these property boundaries just a little bit, just to get a little bit more land, you know, maybe this water source they want or whatever it may be. And this is essentially theft of the land, theft of the resources that were supposed to be assigned to the other people around them. Uh, it's interesting to note, too, as we read through this, that uh, this kind of implies. The concept of personal property, that if God commands us to not steal, that means that somebody has something that we're not supposed to have, that God has set up societies to work in this manner. Now, God has called us, obviously, to be willing to give things over for the good of others and to help other people, uh, but we can't just ignore this concept of personal property and rights to possess things. Uh, In verse 15, he kind of switches gears again back a little bit more towards the, the trial, the law side of things. So verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And so he lays out kind of the next step of this concept of justice and trial, um, accusation and witnesses. And a lot of what they're doing here, it says in those last couple of verses, is to make an example of those who deviate from the law of God. Uh, In verse 19, it says, you shall purge the evil from your midst. Verse 20, the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. And so in this case, bringing that swift, just punishment to the evildoers would act as a preventative for people following that same route. Obviously, there's always going to be exceptions, but... In general, people will see the punishment brought for these crimes and it will make them think twice about doing such things, about straying from the law of God and committing these crimes against fellow people. He talks about purging the evil from their midst, that Israel was to be faithful to God's commands in doing this in order to have a just society, to have a holy society, to have a society set apart for God. uh, That doing these things would bring about justice on a broad scale and help them to live not only in peace and in happiness, but also in holiness, in right relationship with God. Uh, We think about, in verse 15, it talks about a single witness not sufficing. It says, only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Uh, that Again, they're trying to defend people from false accusations. Uh, they're trying to make sure that they're thorough in the way they carry out justice and that they know what the truth is with certainty before they take action against the accused person. It also talks about false witnesses here in this section. Verse 18, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and he's accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. And so they're saying if someone comes forward and makes a false accusation against another person, and it's found out that they're doing so falsely, that the accuser is to have the same punishment they were trying to bring on the other person. They take false accusations very, very seriously, that they want to know the truth and again defend the innocent person from these false accusations. Now uh, we see just such an interesting example of this uh, in Matthew chapter 26, the trial of Jesus before his execution. It says in Matthew 26, 59, that the chief priests and the whole council were seeking False testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. And we see just such a strong deviation from very clear instructions God had given them. That the priests, the Pharisees, were so blinded by their pride, by their hatred for Jesus, that they were willing to ignore the laws God had given them for their good and seek these false accusers. Jesus, And had they carried out this trial rightly, these false accusers should have suffered the same fate as Christ. But of course, they didn't. Uh, back to Deuteronomy. He talks about, in verse 21, how they should not have pity on the person as they're carrying out the punishment. It should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for For foot. Most of us are familiar with this phrasing. Uh, We see Jesus talk a little bit about this in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Um, But in the context here of justice, of law, of crime, punishment, and an ordered society, that really this is a grace. This is not vengeance or some sort of personal vendetta they're encouraging. That they're saying in this case, the punishment should match the crime that was committed. Uh, We see examples in various cultures of just extreme punishment for different crimes. Um, You know, they're trying to just really frighten people out of ever stepping over the line, and the punishment so far exceeds what even seems just or fair for the crime. And they're saying in this case that the punishment should be on the same level has the crime. For a minor infraction, it should bear a minor punishment. Something major obviously requires a more major punishment. And this is another way that Israel would stand out from the nations around them, and that their justice was to be fair, was to be equitable, was to treat people in line with what they had done. And so we think about What we read about here earlier, uh, about murder, about anger, about God's holiness, how lowering people to a place they shouldn't be is not only a sin against them, it's a sin against a holy God. And what punishment is adequate for a sin against an infinitely holy God? How can God purge the evil from his people. And how could we ever be made right with such a holy God? And it's interesting to see, it's fun to see as we study through just just the beauty of the gospel being brought into what often is seen as kind of a mundane portion of the Old Testament. That as we study through Deuteronomy 19, we see that God is just and holy. We connect that to Matthew 5, and we're reminded that we are not holy, that we are sinners, that we have transgressed our fellow people and we have transgressed a holy God. And what could possibly make us right again with this infinitely holy God? That would only be a holy and perfect sacrifice. And so our New Testament connection here, we've had a few different ones, but the one we're gonna close on is from Romans chapter six, which I forgot to put a bookmark in. Romans six. I think uh, these words, at least some of them are gonna sound familiar to you guys, I think. Uh, But Romans, or excuse me, Romans chapter three. I had my notes wrong. Uh, Romans chapter three verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so we think about the way that we have all transgressed God's law. We have all sinned against a perfect and holy God. What could pay that penalty but a perfect sacrifice? So here in Romans, it tells us that God put forward this perfect sacrifice, the propitiation on our behalf to purchase our redemption in his blood, to make us right and holy before a holy God. Verse 26 tells us that he might be, God might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith. And so through the sacrifice of Jesus, God remains just, that he has poured out his wrath and punishment for an unholy people who have transgressed his laws and sinned against him, that he is just in his punishment. But through Jesus, he also justified us. He has made us right, brought us back into that right relationship with him, that we might live as his children, that we might have eternal life with him. What a great God! So we're going to close in prayer. Doug's going to come pray another song, but that's uh, going back to our focus point here for the evening. That God's people must value life. We must seek justice in our dealings. And we have to be grateful for God's just provision on our behalf. That whenever we see people sinning against God, we see justice either being brought or denied people for their crimes. We can be reminded that God was just, but that he spared us that punishment we deserved and found a way to still make us right and holy before him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, God. Thank you for your character, Lord, that you are a good God, that you are a just God and a holy God. Lord, I thank you that you've created mankind in your image and given us a special role to fill in life with one another, God. I pray that you would help us to live that out in our day-to-day lives That we would remember uh, that every person around us is created in your image, Lord, bears the image of the divine God and deserves a level of respect for that, Lord. And I thank you for reminding us that you love us, God, that you loved us enough to send your Son to live as we could never live, to die the death we deserve, to rise again, securing our redemption, Father. We are so grateful for that. I pray that that would empower us as we go through life, Lord, that that would drive us, that that would motivate us, and keep us centered in every situation, Lord, that we would hold fast to you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.